Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tour.com. Joining me today is Hugo-nominated writer Seanan Maguire, who also writes under the name Mira Grant. Her previous works include The October Day and In Cryptid, am I pronouncing that correctly? Series? You are. Amongst others, as Sean Maguire and the newsflash novels as Mira Grant. She received the Campbell Award in 2010. Her latest is the Tor.com novella Every Heart a Doorway, which is about a group of young people who are recovering, or attempting to recover or not, from a trip to another place and time. It's a portal fantasy about what happens when you come back from your portal fantasy and maybe just maybe you didn't really want to it's about growing up and dealing with reality whatever that may be welcome to midnight in karachi sean thank you for having me now right off the bat what was your initial start point for every heart a doorway which is a fantastic title by the way thank you so much i love portal fantasies but i am I saw someone say recently that the thing I do most is overthink things, and I think that that's fairly true. Um, If you hand me a story, I'm going to look at it and I'm going to ask, well, why does it stop here? What comes next? Uh, There are endings, but sometimes those endings don't go as far into the consequences of the story itself as, as I want them to. And I've been doing that since I was a very small girl, asking why did Dorothy want to go back? Um, how did Megan's parents deal when she and her siblings all disappeared over the rainbow forever? Um, all of these things that, that for me were loose threads. So I had kind of been wondering about the kids of Portal Fantasies forever. And then Lee Harris, who is the editor of the Tor.com novella imprint, uh, said, hey, do you want to write us something? You can write us pretty much whatever you want. And I went, well, this is really weird. No one will want it. So I'm going to write it for you. You said you were a fan of portal fantasies, enough to say that's your favorite subgenre of science fiction fantasy? Uh, actually, my favorite subgenre is probably urban fantasy, uh, because in, uh, in school I did a dual major in folklore and herpetology, so fairy tales and snakes. And as far as I'm concerned, urban fantasy is our modern fairy tales. Uh, because if you look at the fairy tale, the Western fairy tales, they're always about the kind of people that the storytellers would know. You know, your grandmother, of course, she lives on the other side of the forest because we moved away when we started having kids and needed to have more room. Um, of course, you know about a prince in a castle somewhere. You may never meet him, but he's a real person to you. So urban fantasy is now filling that niche for us. And I, I have a very soft spot for the things I studied in school because I get to feel like I'm smart having read proto examples of most of them. Right. Now, give me one portal fantasy world that exists in fiction that you'd like to travel to and one made-up world that you'd really like to find a portal to. Well, uh, one port. this is, is, please don't laugh at me, um, but I am a child of the Never. 1980s. So am and, I. It's uh, fine. We can laugh at each other. It's fine. Oh, good. As far as I am concerned, the original My Little Pony cartoon is a portal fantasy. The ponies are in trouble. And Firefly, who is one of their Pegasuses, says, I'm going to go get help. And she flies over the rainbow and kidnaps a farm girl named Megan because Megan has opposable thumbs and they really need that. And Megan goes back with Firefly to Ponyland, uh, which is populated by talking unicorns and Pegasus ponies and all of that. And uh, eventually, like Dorothy, another girl who went over the rainbow, winds up going back on a permanent basis. The ponies take her and her brother Danny and her sister Molly, and they all go live in Ponyland forever. Um, 
And I would love to visit Ponyland because that is probably the portal fantasy. I spent the most time either watching or interacting with or dreaming about when I was a kid. Uh, as far as made up portal fantasy worlds, um, if I'm looking at the ones from my setting, uh, I would really like to go to the Moors because I love horror movies and I love logical horror movies. And the Moors follow very much the rules of the old Vincent Price horror films, where if you're, you know, even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the moon is full and bright. And so there's always rules and there's always strictures. And I appreciate that. I like knowing what the world will expect of me. So I think I could do pretty well there. Now, horror films. I read this article on Tor.com recently in which you were writing about possibly having seen too many. Is there such a thing as too many horror films? When do you know how many is too many? And in a truly horrific situation, if you could only watch three horror movies again and again forevermore, which three would they be? So uh, there is a man named Kenneth Muir. He is a, a horror film scholar, which is a job title I wish I had known was a real job title because I would totally have gone for that job. That is fantastic, um, yes. And he has written uh, several books called Kenneth Muir's Guide to the Horror Films of Insert Era Here. So he did Kenneth Muir's horror films of the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s. I have used all of Kenneth Muir's horror films of the 1980s and uh, to date half of horror films of the 1990s as a checklist. Right. That's so a lot. I started. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, I watched horror movies that that no one should have to watch. I mean, he is a very he is a very fair reviewer. He shows his biases clearly, so we don't always agree. But if he says, I didn't like this movie because I could see the strings on the plastic spiders, well, I grew up watching Doctor Who. I don't care about strings on the plastic spiders. I'm going to give it a try. Uh, but if he says, I don't like this movie because it was misogynistic and unnecessarily woman-hating, he's probably right. I'm probably not going to like the film. Um, and there were a couple movies in there that he had given zero stars to, that I watched anyway so that I could complete my checklist. And he was overly generous. Those should have been like negative two stars. He should right. have taken stars away to give to better movies. Hours of my life I will never get back. Oh, God. Um, but you have no one to blame but yourself for that. Oh, oh, I know, which is right? why I don't blame anyone. I, I don't even blame Kenneth Muir. I'm just... Right. This is a he thing did warn you I after did. all, yes. He, he did, but it's like... It's like when you hit that point where you've eaten everything except for two bites and it's not enough to make a leftover, but you don't feel like wasting food. So you eat it and then you feel kind of sick. And you're like, why? Well, you did that to yourself. No one's going to feel bad for you. Um, I will feel bad for you because I have done that to myself. If I could only watch three horror movies over and over for the rest of my life, um, and, and that's all I'm getting for whatever reason, uh, I would take James Gunn's Slither, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I just find it incredibly soothing to the point that when I start getting spun up, sometimes my girlfriend will be like, honey, let's go watch Slither again. Uh, she's very tolerant. <laughs> um, Resident Evil 2. Okay. That's I, I love it's very, I, I know it's very specific. I love the first two Resident Evil movies. And uh, I've forgiven them for four and five, right. but number three was, was a nightmare hellscape that should never have gone into production. 
Um, and uh, I don't know, are we counting horror movie musicals as horror movies or do I get to keep those separately? No, I'm going to be really harsh and say you have to count all of them. Okay, so in that case, I, I think you could make a solid argument that Little Shop of Horrors right, counts yes. as, a, as a horror movie musical. Yes, um, fair enough. And, and I, could, I couldn't live without Little Shop of Horrors as an option for watching. So that would have to take my, my number three spot. Yeah. It, oh, it's a very strange film. Um, but you know, I, where we're showing our age today. Um, I was, when I was a kid, if you owned any videos at all, you were a rock star because right. VHS in the home was still relatively new. And that meant a lot of the films I actually did wind up acquiring through whatever mechanism were not necessarily films you want your kid to have, right. but my mom didn't want to take them away because I had two two videos. You know, today you find your kid with an inappropriate movie. You're going to go, you have 97 Disney films. And you delete you, you have, yeah. Yeah, you don't need this. Um, but so my, uh, my grandmother, who loved me very much, um, bought me Little Shop of Horrors on VHS. And the year that I was nine, I watched that movie every single day. I would get home from school and watch Little Shop of Horrors. And so my poor mother sat through that film at least 300 times. Um, she wasn't necessarily watching it actively, but she'd be somewhere in the apartment and suddenly I'm singing Sun Be a Dentist again. Uh, so she's very, very tolerant. All right, now you write fantasy as Sean McGuire and science fiction as Mira Grant. In order, I assume, to keep some sort of distance between, you know, the two different sorts of books that you write. How mm -hmm. different then is Mira from Sean, if at all? Uh, when I first started being Mira, we would joke about having me dress differently for cons and, you know, act differently. And wouldn't that be fun? Um, but the unfortunate truth of the matter is, you know, if, if I were a guy and I wanted to create a persona that I took out to, to places and, you know, oh, she's being Mira, she's like being Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, um, people would probably think it was funny. Uh, as a girl, there would be an unfortunate undertone of anything I did that was supposed to make Mira seem, I don't know, I, I always figured Mira would be a bit more diva-ish because horror authors tend to be and, and might throw her hands up and demand things and such, uh, would probably reflect really poorly on me rather than being taken as a joke. So we quickly decided that we wouldn't try to do that. Um, and also I would drive everyone who has to deal with me at conventions crazy. Uh, so instead, I just will will vary my color palette for mirror specific events. Um, when I'm myself, the, the real person, I tend to wear a lot of bright colors and things that can clash sometimes. And for Mira, I go kind of light mall goth. Um, but I still write the, the books the same. You know, when I wrote the first book that wound up becoming a Mira Grant book, we didn't know for sure whether my publisher would want a pseudonym or whether right. it would be published under my name. And that sort of set the tone uh, in terms of you just write the books and then what they put on the cover is what they put on the cover. Uh, it is funny, though, because the Mira Grant uh, brand, for lack of a better word, I'm making air quotes, is very much about research. When I'm being Mira, I research 
everything. Right. It's an iceberg. There is so much beneath the surface that readers will never see because they shouldn't have to. You don't have to see the duck paddling to know that it swims. But I spend hours on the phone with scientists asking questions, doing consultations, trying to make sure that when I destroy the world today, I'm doing it in as scientifically accurate a method as possible. When I'm being Sean and I don't have to care about that. As Sean and I can just be creepy. And so in uh, in short fiction form, anything under 20,000 words, Seanan is actually infinitely more creepy than Mira. Right. Because as Mira, I have to stop and tell you why it's upsetting. Right. And if I've only got 20,000 words, that's going to take up half my runtime. Whereas when I'm Seanan, I'm just like, there is a dead body on your porch. <laughs> Deal with it. Yes. Yeah. We're going to have fun now. And is your muse really a woman called Jane with an elaborate, fantastic nightlife? Uh, yes, she is. I, I don't talk about Jane as much anymore because I, I personified Jane when I was a teenager and thought it was very cool to have a personified muse. And that's not as, as much the fashion anymore. Um, but I always figured if I had a muse, uh, she would be and would mostly come in the form of leaving crumpled bar napkins on the desk with something written on it like, body on the porch you do that and then she leaves and lets me do all the work right um so you know i have ideas but i have to work for them she sounds like one of the sort of uh i mean i could be completely wrong but just the way you said that she sounds like she could be one of the drunk extras in the bar in true blood a bit yeah she do you know could what be I mean? like she could be one of those who's just like watching and observing everything and just comes up with one line here or there um yeah that that would work really well i have to tell charlene that she will find it funny. I do love the True Blood novels, I have to say. Um, they, they've, at some point, people said, are they a guilty pleasure? And I was like, I feel no guilt. I just yeah, enjoy no them. And no guilt at all. Now, Every Heart Adore is dedicated for the wicked. Who are these wicked? Uh, I wrote a song uh, a bunch of years ago called Wicked Girls Saving Ourselves, which has become sort of an anthem for my readership and for a lot of people who don't actually care that I write books. They just care that I wrote this song. And it was actually about the girls of Portal Fantasies. So when I was explaining Every Heart to people who know me, a, a lot of them I said, it's Wicked Girls, the book. Um, and it, it's, you know, uh, Wendy played fair and she played by the rules that they gave her. They say she grew up and grew old. Peter Pan couldn't save her. They say she went home and she never looked back, got her feet on the ground, got her life on its track. She's the patron saint priestess of all the lost girls who got found. And she once had her head in the clouds, but she died on the ground. And uh, the, the chorus runs, Dorothy, Alice, and Wendy, and Jane, Susan, and Lucy were calling your names. All the lost girls who came out of the rain and chose to go back on the shelf. Tinkerbell says, and I find I agree, that you have to break rules if you want to break free. So do as you like. We're determined to be wicked girls saving ourselves. And uh, people have had lyrics from it tattooed on them. We did a couple of limited shirt t-shirt runs that just said, wicked girl saving myself. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, it, it's meant a lot to a lot of people, and it's meant a lot to me. I mean, it, it was a song I really wanted to write. And uh, in, gosh, I'm, I'm terrible with time, but a couple of years ago, uh, the album that it's on, which is, is called Wicked Girls, was actually nominated for a Hugo Award, which was the first time ever that a single artist filk album had been nominated for the Hugo. So that just meant so much to me. And um, and that song has really defined a lot of my career and a lot of the way that I interact with my readers. 
So it seemed like the appropriate group to dedicate the book to. Especially this book. Oh, especially this book, yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about the songs that you've been writing. Tell me a little bit about Filk, which is also something you do. Uh, Filk is the folk music of science fiction and fantasy. So um, if you think about like Joan Baez or Peter, Paul and Mary, the folk musicians, it's people kind of like that. And some of them are just as talented. It's amazing. But their subject material is usually science fiction things. It's I'm going to build me a starship. It's I'm going to you know, genetically engineer myself a new boyfriend. Right. Uh, they write songs about books, songs about films. We have conventions. Um, I want to say all over the world because that's how it was always said to me, but we have conventions in North America and Europe. Yes, you do. Uh, there are, yeah, there are currently no filk conventions outside of North America and Europe. So if you're a filker elsewhere in the world, well, please start a convention. I'd love to come. There aren't all that many science fiction conventions outside of North America and Europe either. So yeah, very few. So um, what, you know, we have our own awards every year, the Pegasus Award, uh, which is given for excellence in filking. It's a really warm, welcoming, open community. Uh, and it's, it's honestly, that community is, is both what kind of brought me to fandom when I was a teenager and has been so incredibly nurturing and supportive of my writing career. It meant that I started as a writer with a small but loyal readership because they were other filkers and they wanted to support a filker going out into the world and doing awesome things. Um, Mercedes Lackey was a filker for a long time. Julia Eklar, who won the Campbell Award in the 1980s, was a filker. So it's it's a community that has spawned a couple of writers. You know, we do pretty good. All right, now I have some questions off Twitter. Hisham asks if you will sing a birthday song for him and put it up online so he can hear it. And then I ask, is this something you do, record birthday songs? Very occasionally, mostly for people that I actually know, and I do know Hisham. Um, he is a good friend of mine who lives in England and also is a Pokemon buddy who has assisted me in getting Pokemon that were not being distributed in the United States. Uh, I don't think that he actually wants me to sing right now because if you can <laughs> hear, I, I sound kind of, well, awful. Um, I'm getting over a really, really awful cold that just ripped my throat to shreds. Um, so it's it's fun talking. But Hisham, I will sing you a birthday song as soon as I have a voice again. Birthday cards can be late, so the birthday song can be a little there late. There you go. Speaking of Pokemon, Charles asks what your favorite Pokemon is, what your favorite parasite is, and what your favorite doll is, and what the worst thing that's bitten you is. Those are actually really <laughs> great questions. <clears throat> So my favorite Pokemon is Sylveon, which is the fairy type evolution of Eevee introduced in the Pokemon XY games that came out a couple years ago. Um, Pokemon is one of my favorite things. I love Pokemon. I'm I know nothing player. about Pokemon, I have to admit. It, it's all right. You, it's Other basically than like, little monster fighting. Yeah, I just know the little yellow guy is called Pikachu and that's about it. I know I'm, I'm horrible, horrible. That's like the worst thing I could have said, right? I don't know anything no, else. No, no, it's it's really, really not. Um, I, I act, One of the things I love about Pokemon is that... It gives kids who come to my readings and such with their parents something to do, you know, because they just light up when you go, oh, you do Pokemon. You want to talk to you want to talk about that because uh, there are so few adults who will take them seriously. But Sylveon is my favorite. Sylveon's a relatively new Pokemon. So I was one of the first people out in my area to use her in actual competitive play. And um, I'm a big, big fan of anything that looks like it's made of taffeta and ribbons that will just choke you to death. That is delightful unto me. Um, my favorite parasite is 
well, actually, my favorite parasite is, is the cuckoo because brood parasitism delights me. Uh, but assuming that Charles wanted some sort of smaller, less being a bird parasite, uh, I am a big fan of the tapeworm. Tapeworms are incredibly versatile and they just they kind of do their tapewormy thing. Uh, they are fascinating. They are all around the world. You find them in all sorts of animals. You know, everything has its own tapeworm. And most of the time when someone gets really super sick from a tapeworm, it's because they have encountered a tapeworm that does not normally parasitize their species. So the tapeworm is actually in a hostile environment and it's freaking out. And that's why it's hurting the, pe the person it's in rather than just kind of quietly sitting there and being a parasite. A successful parasite does not kill its host. Um, so I, I love tapeworms. I find them fascinating. I had a tapeworm for a couple of years. I, I got him from a parasitology museum because I was doing research for a book. His name was Timmy. Um, I miss Timmy. I, I got accustomed to having him around. Hang on, um, hang on, hang on. Did you have him in you or like yes, in a test? I got him in pill form and I, I swallowed him and um, I had a tapeworm. Is that, is, is that all right to do? Well, my doctor wasn't thrilled. Yeah, I was going to say, because um, that's the kind of thing that people in the third world try and, you know, stop getting. Well, people everywhere try and, yes, and well, stop I mean, getting. I more mean, likely for us in the third world to actually get them. <laughs> but you, you chose uh, to have one. Well, what I chose was to have a goat tapeworm, and they are relatively low impact when humans get them. Um, I was under medical monitoring the whole time, and it was mostly so I could accurately describe the effects of the tapeworm of a non-clinically dangerous tapeworm infection on the human body. Because um, I had read the studies, but the studies are frequently very, they're either very dry uh, or they're being written down by people who have just lost someone to a tapeworm infection or are horrified by their tapeworm infection. And I, I needed to have something that was a little less clinical but also not enormously distressed. Can I ask how long you had Timmy for? Well, I meant to have Timmy for about a year. Uh, my first course of antiparasitics didn't work, surprise. And so I had Timmy for a year and a half. And uh, during that time, all of my friends would like watch me wash my hands. <laughs> you know, no, you're going to go wash yeah. up. I, I, and, you know, I understand no one wants a tapeworm, but he was a goat tapeworm. He was very chill. I miss him. I'm just a little bit horrified. I, I understand. Yeah. Most people are. I'm glad you're done with him. Yeah, a, a lot of people are that, too. <laughs> I had one friend who was not perturbed by Timmy at all. She was a medical student, and I had basically produced the paperwork going, this is the species of tapeworm that I have. This is the doctor's note. You know, I'm under supervision. We're fine. Um, so she would bring him up at the dinner table when I was eating with people who didn't know about Timmy. She just all of a sudden goes, so, Shannon, how's your tapeworm? And uh, that was a little mean. Yeah. Funny. But <laughs> Funny, mean. but mean. All right. Now, move, moving swiftly on from Timmy to, to new, <laughs> exciting things that are not eating us from the inside. What are you up to now? What's new? What's exciting? Um, every hard doorway is out. But what else is yes. going on? Um, so I am I am constantly writing because I have a lot of deadlines and also because I, I don't sleep. So I'm currently working on the October day book that will come out in 2017. Um, and uh, after that is done, I actually the next thing on my list 
is the next novella that is in the world of Every Heart a Doorway. Um, so we've been with they tour.com commissioned two more okay. uh, before Every Heart even came out, which was amazing and was such a great show of we really want to see more in this world. I, I appreciate it a lot. Um, and uh, so I'm going to be doing one that is before the events of Every Heart a Doorway that's following a couple of our portal children uh, through their original journey and shows what happened to them in the place that they went to. And then one that will be set after the events of Every Heart a Doorway. I, I'm not calling them sequels. The first one is definitely not a sequel, but I'm not sure prequel is the right word when it's not directly related to the events of the book. <clears throat> and then the second one hasn't been written yet, so it's unclear how direct of a sequel it'll be, but I view that more as a, as a second trip to the same place. And I know that's kind of splitting hairs, but there are so many genre expectations around words like sequel that I try right. to make sure to only use them when I'm absolutely sure that they are accurate. So we'll call them companion novellas. Yeah, there you go. All right, well, that's uh, that's a lot of stuff to look forward to for us and Thank I guess you. for you. Overwhelming, but you know. Yeah, I well, it, if I just keep moving every day, then it never gets fully overwhelming. Like a shark, um, right? If you keep moving. Yeah, you like drown. a shark. Yeah. Uh, it is, a, but moving around is actually very accurate because if I get sick or something and, and miss a week, suddenly all of these very carefully constructed uh, houses look like they are about to fall down. Oh, and uh, Charles, the most interesting thing I've ever been bitten by was Claude the King Cobra, and he and I have since made amends. Is that a story I want to ask about? Uh, it was when I was studying herpetology. Um, I, they, you have to do certifications to do venomous reptile handling you have to show that you can handle them safely i'm not surprised and, yes well, yeah i know that you wouldn't want to just hand someone a venomous right. reptile yes. and be like you yeah, have fun uh and i was taking my large venomous reptile certification course where i showed that i could be trusted with big ones and unfortunately uh one of the other students in that course failed and dropped his share of the king cobra oh, it's always the other guy isn't it well, in this case, it really was the other guy. Like, <laughs> I still had a pretty good grip. Um, but so he, he dropped his section of the cobra, and uh, this pulled the cobra out of the rest of us's hands. So now Claude was loose um, and had been dropped. And he was and, annoyed, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, if you ever have to hold a king cobra for any reason, don't drop him. Um, it does not delight the cobra to be dropped. Uh, so Claude started uh, raising himself up and, and fenting at us. Um, and I, I don't know if you've ever seen a king cobra, but they can lift a full third of their body off the ground. So they can make themselves very tall. Um, and in fact, that's that's sort of what they want to do is be very tall because that makes them more threatening and that's an evolutionary advantage. But that means that I'm, I'm five foot seven. A king cobra that is standing and fenting is on face level with me. Right. Uh, so he stood, he fented. I put my arm up to block him from getting me in the face because I really didn't want that to happen. Uh, he took umbrage at the speed with which I had raised my arm and he grabbed hold of my arm. And we actually do have a photograph of this, uh, which currently hangs in the herpetology department of the college I attended, showing me at the age of 19 uh, with this king cobra hanging off of my arm, uh, just sort of dangling there. 
And I'm looking at the cobra with this expression of profound disappointment. <laughs> um, it really looks like I'm saying, I thought better of you. Uh, and uh, eventually one of my professors, someone had gone to fetch him. He got the cobra off my arm. I woke up in the hospital. Uh, lobsters were crawling in and out of the walls. Everything was melting. Cobra wow. antivenom is great. I do not <laughs> recommend it. I had no um, idea that's how things went down when a snake bit you. Well, it depends on the snake and it depends on your personal response to the antivenom. Um, so I, I cannot say that you would absolutely have the same experience. And that's that's probably a good thing because I think yeah. folks might be trying to use cobra antivenom to get high. Sure, but like um, lobsters in the war. I mean, that's very, you know, oh, yeah. dolly. That's yeah. a very <laughs> common visual hallucination for me when I have drugs in my system that cause visual hallucinations is there will be lobsters just wandering in and out of the walls. Um, and my, my professor came, if you're bitten by a school-owned snake, they have to take an after-action report as if you had been shot by a campus policeman. They have to make sure that they have documented that the school was not at fault, that you're not going to sue the school, all of this other stuff. Um, so my professor came and said, you know, hey, we have several eyewitness accounts. We know that you're not the one that dropped the snake. Uh, we know that you were not at fault, but I still have to take your statement. Um, And he asks various questions about the encounter. And then he says, okay, according to Natasha, who was in the room, after the snake bit you, you made no effort to remove him from your arm. And, and cobras are chewers. They will frequently bite down on a target and then just stay there, chewing to work the venom deeper into the wound rather than releasing and going on to another target. Um, why did you not attempt to remove the snake from your arm? And I said, well you know, cobras have a lot of very small teeth and they were fairly deeply embedded. And I was afraid that if I just ripped him off my arm, uh, I would yank out a bunch of his teeth and hurt him very badly. He had already bitten me. There was nothing worse he could do. And it didn't seem fair to permanently injure and maybe even kill the snake for doing what a snake does. And and my professor said, you know, I, I know you. And so I genuinely believe that you thought of this while you were being bitten, but that's not why you didn't pull the snake off your arm. Uh, why did you? Why didn't you pull the snake off your arm? And I said, well, I'm I'm a herpetology student. I'm not a human anatomy student. I don't know which arteries and veins are in that part of my arm. Um, I could have ripped myself open and bled out on the floor, and that seemed a lot less effective than just letting the snake stay where he was and uh, eventually someone would, would do exactly what you did and come and save me right and he says again i know you so i believe that you thought of this but that's not why you didn't pull the snake off your arm why didn't you pull the snake off your arm and i said i knew exactly how much cobra antivenin we had in the lab fridge and i was by god not going to share <laughs> and he said yep that's why you didn't pull the snake off your arm i hope you enjoyed that anti-venom It sounds I like well, I did not because it was yeah. horrible. <laughs> Antivenin is the worst, but I enjoyed not dying of cobra bite. Yes, I think in that sense you might have enjoyed it or been grateful for it. Let's put it that way. Oh, I was absolutely grateful for it, but it's it's sort of like going to the dentist to have your teeth cleaned. Yeah, uh, you probably don't enjoy that, but you're really grateful to continue having teeth. Um, I did not enjoy the cobra antivenin, but I'm really grateful to continue having a pulse. And look at all the books you've written since then. I know, right? Yeah, would never have done that had it not been for the anti-venom and the lobsters on the walls. Yay. 
Yay, anti-venom. It's great. Don't antagonize cobras. They're really sweet and just want to be left alone. I thought you said that about rattlesnakes a little while ago off air. I did. Rattlesnakes are also very sweet and just most snakes are very sweet and just want to be left alone. Unless you're in Australia, most of their snakes are assholes. Right. I'll keep that in mind. If like I'm Australian ever in Australia. Will flat out chase you. Normal snakes, you go away from the snake. The snake is like, ah, oh, the human left. Yay, party. Australian snakes, the brown snakes especially, they will follow you for up to a mile. That is frightening. Yeah, Australian yeah. I love Australian snakes, but Australian snakes are assholes. They have a lot of predators in Australia, I have to say. It's like, you know, and a lot of very strange animals because it was cut off, I think, from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And they developed in a whole other way. Maybe yeah. they just didn't like being left alone all the way down there. And that's how they got so aggressive. Oh, so the snakes just want to give you a hug right. with their mouths. <laughs> and their teeth. Yes. On and that note, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun.